1: Hi, welcome back to okay, you know what we're doing. It's an election year. We've been going to various states. Let's go out to Iowa, which has dual importance because they've got themselves a Senate race this year. But we all know the Iowa caucuses and Iowa kicks off the presidential cycles. It's very important because that's how people plan their presidential campaigns. We called out an expert, got our friend uh, Guinea Coulter reached out, said this is the man to talk to. And here he is. He's an election official. He's been working at the county level for a long time. He's also a Democratic Party official. He has been doing caucuses for 18 years. He knows them inside and out. He also knows the primary system. Perfect guy to talk to, John Deeth. Thank you so much for the time, sir.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Thrilled that you're here to explain this to me like I'm five, because I've been trying to cover politics for a couple of years now, and I still haven't quite figured out Iowa. So let's just cut to it. What in a perfect world, before we start bashing it and talk about everybody's problems with it and all that, (laughs) in a perfect world. What was the caucuses supposed to be that they became kind of this revered thing in tradition?
0: Well, a caucus is simply just a meeting of the party activists within a given area, such as a precinct. And Iowa's had caucuses for a very, very, very long time. It wasn't until the early 70s that they started to take on a national importance. The uh, uh, McGovern Commission that reformed the uh, nomination process after the 1968 convention set a whole bunch of new rules around caucuses. There had to be a certain amount of uh, lead time for notice. Uh, They had to be in public locations and things like that. And so Iowa jumped in front of the New Hampshire primary kind of by accident because of the meeting notice times and because of the limits of 1970s photocopying technology. They were, you know, think purple ditto masters. And so Jimmy Carter realized Iowa was before New Hampshire, uh, made an extra effort here. We have people uh, in my county who still brag that Jimmy Carter slept on their couch and that launched him to the White House. And so that started the Iowa caucuses as a mass event as we know them. Uh, The issue that's been a problem from my perspective as a local activist uh, since about the 2004 cycle is that the caucuses have grown beyond the uh, meeting of of the core party activists, and they become a mass participation event, which you would think that's good, having more people participating in the process. The problem is that the rules are still set up for 20 people in a living room, and now it's more like 300, 500, up to over 900 people in a voting precinct uh, crammed into a gymnasium or an auditorium, still working, With rules that were designed for 20 people. And you can't organize your party in a mob of 900 people, most of whom simply want to vote for president and go home. All you can really do is the crowd control and the anger management.
1: And that hasn't been going as well. The optics were just horrible. You have a lot of cases, there's school gyms, uh, places like churches in a lot of these cases. And they're just absolutely overflowing. We saw the optics of 2020 where you have, you know, you'd have a church building, you'd have the auditorium and then the whole outside of the church. And then you have the line outside and they're trying to take TVs out there. Optically, it looked like chaos on the ground. Was it chaos? Was that an accurate depiction or was it just people trying to make the best of a bad decision and it just looked way worse than it was?
0: I think... First of all, I don't want to throw the local volunteers under the bus. They do the best that they can uh, with an impossible situation. The problem is that enough rooms that are big enough just don't exist. Once you get above about the size of a grade school gym that will hold maybe 200 people, Spaces are few and far between. The average Iowa caucus score went to a caucus of 191 people, which has got that gym already pretty full. Uh, In my county, Johnson County, which is the most Democratic in the state, more than half our precincts were over 300 people. Uh, And the more new people that get involved who aren't familiar with the rules and the folkways. The more confusion is, there is and the more, you know, frankly, anger that there is, they don't understand why they have to stand around and wait so long when all they want to do is vote and go home. One of the complicating things is that the Republicans have a completely different set of rules uh, that really pretty much are vote and go home. But the Democrats, everything in Democratic nomination politics is centered around proportional representation, which is why your grouping into groups that have to add up to more than 15% of the room and you have the realignment periods and things like that. But a lot of people just aren't interested in those things. They want to cast their ballot, have their vote resident president recorded, and then go home and you know have an evening.
1: Yeah. Talking to John Deeth out in Iowa. Um, let's start there though. 2020, the obvious thing happened is By the time they figured out who won the Iowa caucuses, we were already on to the next state. Actually, we were already basically in South Carolina by the time they got that sorted out. That's just not viable when these campaigns. I bet you you could tell me right now which presidential candidates for 2024 are already starting to set up shop in Iowa, can't you? Like they put so much time and effort into this. It's just it's becoming a return on investment issue because the winners aren't really translating to the greater race. Plus the chaos involved. This this seems like it's kind of in a bit of a death spiral, at least optically and nationally. Is that how it feels to you?
0: Yeah, we uh, we've kind of had three strikes. You're out with the uh, results. Uh, It's just sheer bad luck that I was had three ties in a row. Uh, First in 2012 on the Republican side and then in 16 and 20 on the Democratic side. And caucuses were never set up to have the kind of precise, instant results uh, that a state-run election does. Uh, It's not about how many people voted for so-and-so. A caucus is really about electing delegates to a next level of convention. And so instead of using uh, the infrastructure of the 99-county election offices, which is one of which is where I work my day job, They are relying on an all volunteer network of people who are trying to report into a state party. And that uh, was a recipe for disaster, as we uh, as we found out in 2020 on the Democratic side.
1: Is it funny? I guess it's irony, though, is. You talk about the way the the caucuses became national because of the limitations of photocopying and ditto machines. That's the purple ink stuff for people like me, old enough to remember it from. Mm -hmm. And as I say that, lots of us can smell that instantly from our school days. That was limiting that what got it. Is it kind of a little bit of an irony that the new technology, the limitations of that is the thing that might actually finally kill off the Iowa caucuses, at least in their traditional form?
0: Well, there's a number of things that are combining to kill off the Iowa caucuses and I recently uh, told my county party that I'm not going to organize them anymore, Uh, I don't mind hard work, but I mind futile work, and I felt like I was enabling a process that just isn't right, Uh, the. Uh, the results reporting process was the biggest meltdown in uh, in 2020. I think the precinct volunteers did the best they could managing the crowds, although there were you know, sharp tempers because you're, you're in a highly contested, highly competitive race. Uh, but people did the best they could, but then they couldn't uh, they couldn't report the results. Depending upon who you believe, that was either the Iowa Democratic Party's fault or the DNC's fault. Uh, I'm not going to go into the blame there. But the thing is, Iowa's already got an infrastructure of 99 election offices staffed by uh, professionals who know how to count votes and report election results. And yet we're not using that. We're relying on a network of uh, of volunteers. And that just isn't uh, that's just not cutting it in the 21st century.
1: Yeah, John Deeth out in Iowa, joining us. Uh, we know there's a lot of pride involved. Uh, there's a lot of uh, inter—I don't know how you want to call it—but interstate rivalry with New Hampshire about who gets to go first. That's oh, yeah. on the national level. That's <laughs> yeah, that's on the national level. Though the people that actually have to do these elections—the volunteers, the professional poll workers. Where are they at it? Because they're the ones that are really carrying the burden here. Are they ready for a change over to a primary system, even despite the national? I mean, I know nobody wants to give up their power and prestige, but are the workers like, OK, this has got to change. Y'all killing us.
0: Well, there's really two separate questions going on with Iowa right now. Caucuses versus primary and first in the nation. And I've been focused on caucuses as a system because I'm not going to you know, stand here and argue my state shouldn't be first. Of course, that's kind of fun but uh, there are a lot of the rank and file activists like themselves who are starting to stand up and say, first can no longer be an excuse for a bad process. Uh, the We haven't even touched on it yet, but one of the biggest problems with the caucus is that you have to be in person, uh, physically present to participate. There's no real absentee process. You can't request a mail ballot and vote at home in secrecy, you have to be at a meeting. And even our attempt at uh, including people who couldn't attend, which was satellite caucuses, you were still looking at having to be at a specific place at a specific time. Uh, my wife missed two caucuses in 2008. The boys were too little to go. And in 2016, she got hit with mandatory overtime at work. So she didn't get to participate until 2020.
1: Good grief. Uh, John B. out in Iowa. One more thing on the caucuses. Just to wrap it up, uh, the National Party is obviously making some pushes for change. They bring up things like Iowa's diversity. They bring up things like the antiquated caucus. Do you think the first in the nation in the caucus is combined? Can they be bifurcated where you get one or not the other? And which one would you prefer? How do you see this playing out between now and 2020? Because they basically got to the end of this year. They're going to have to make a decision here one way or the other. So what do you think it's going to play out?
0: It's hard to say. One of the biggest factors in how Iowa has set up its rules has been this kind of trying to read the tea leaves of Bill Gardner, the New Hampshire Secretary of State who recently retired. And we didn't want to do anything that upset him that might make him move New Hampshire in front of Iowa the other the other issue is that Iowa's republicans who are in full control of the state government likely will be for the near future are not interested in changing anything about their processes. The democrats cannot unilaterally enact a primary without a change in state law and the republicans don't want to change state law. So what I'm focused on right now is reforms that the Iowa Democratic Party can do that can make the caucuses something closer to a primary election now i understand iowa there's this so we're too old we're too white we're not diverse enough my only argument to that and again i'm not against my state going first is iowa is full of the kind of voters that the democratic pack if we're ever going to build a comfortable margin in national elections if we're ever going to keep control of the senate uh we're going to have to win back rural voters but first and the caucuses are separate questions my priority is dealing with the caucus process. A bad process can't be an excuse anymore just because we want to stay first.
1: Yeah, it's a good point, because if the process is bad, it really doesn't matter if you're first, second or 50th, doesn't?
0: Exactly. If you can't go because you had mandatory overtime, what good is being first?
1: Yeah. Talking to John Deeth out in Iowa, uh, we're going to take a quick break on her until When we come back. We're going to get into a little bit of Iowa politics, past and future. They got themselves a Senate race out there that we're going to have to pay a little bit of attention. More with John Deeth right after this on Tell. Welcome back to Tell, talking to our buddy John Deeth out in Iowa, which is more than just cornfields. They do elections and such out there as well. John, let me ask you something. Something that has been in Iowa's recent political history, I think might have some bearing on a national story now. Granted, it's on the Republican side, and that's not your side, but you're there on the ground. You talk to these folks. There's been a lot of. Republic. Yeah, you know, it's okay to talk to each other. Never hurt anybody. But that's the point here. We have on the Republican side some really problematic Congress people. People are debating what to do. Y'all had this not too long ago. You had Steve King. Uh, he got heavily censored. He got his committee stripped, and then he lost his primary after being, you know, basically ostracized from the party. That wasn't that long ago, two, three years ago. Uh, you went through that process as a state. I don't understand why we're not doing that with this current rash of really problematic congressmen, but it can be done. And Iowa showed that it can be done.
0: Well, it was fascinating that primary because, uh, the, the really the groundwork for defeating Steve King was laid in 2018 by JD Schulten, who was a Democrat who came within a couple of points of winning that very, very deep red district. And after that happened, the Republican leadership in the state was actually concerned that with high presidential turnout, King could actually lose to a Democrat. And so they got together and they got behind uh, Randy Feenstra, who eventually defeated King in the primary. Uh, Shulton ran again, uh, didn't do nearly as well against the less toxic opponent. But now Schulton just announced for a state legislative seat. And uh, he's an exciting young rural leader who uh, is going places in Iowa.
1: Uh, it's just an example of, cause I'm always getting pushback. I'm like, just expel these people. Look, it's a two thirds threshold to do that. You're not going to do that willy nilly. I, I don't buy that right. argument. So, but I'm just, I'm just kind of bum fuzzled because I'm like, they just did it to Steve King and his stuff was horrible and awful, but I, you could argue some of this stuff's even worse. It's not like this is out of the realm of possibility. I I just kind of fun. I wanted to ask you because Iowa managed to rid themselves of somebody that was embarrassing the state, for lack of a better way to phrase it. And I think there's an example there of what to do going forward with some of these Marjorie Taylor Greene type people.
0: The whole key is uh, it's if you become an embarrassment to the party, that's not enough. But if you run the risk of losing to a Democrat, uh, then the Republican Party will unite to try to get rid of you. And that's what happened to Steve King. And mm. now Randy Feenstra, the new congressman, nearly as conservative as King, but he's a little bit more housebroken. He doesn't retweet neo-Nazis. Uh, he's just more of a garden variety, quiet conservative. And uh, as of tomorrow, the filing deadline, he may be unopposed.
1: Wow. That's, um, he's going to be unopposed in a seat that was he, came close a few years ago.
0: Yeah, that came within about two points in 2018. And that's I mean, a sad... Commentary on the status of the Iowa Democratic Party, but it is a very, very tough seed. The thing about Iowa is that on a state level, it's very difficult to win because the western part of the state is so red. But because of our clean districting system, uh, we have three congressional districts on over four that are actually quite competitive.
1: Talking to John Deeth. OK, uh, let's talk about the man who is unquestionably mastered getting a statewide race done, Chuck Grassley. Uh, he is, I guess, an institution would be the only way, Long-standing family in Iowa. Um, he's been a senator forever. Uh, we talk about Joe Biden being too old. Uh, Chuck Grassley is 10 years older than him. To his credit, he is one of the best Twitter followers of all the senators because he tweets just some bonkers stuff that is great, great fun, including deer on the highway. We'll get into that some other time. Um, Assume deer dad. Yeah. What do you do? Um <laughs> Chuck Grassley initially was not going to run again. Then he decided to run again. Is, does he have any danger in this race? Is there any real uh, contest to speak of here?
0: I hate to say this as a good Democrat, but I have to be uh, honest and rank Grassley as a strong favorite. Now, he's not as strong as he was in uh, in the past. He used to win re-election with margins like 70 percent and ha- attract a lot of crossover Democratic support, but starting with 2010 and even more so in 2016, uh, the state started to polarize more. Uh, Those Democrats have come back home and voted for the Democratic nominees. The problem is the baseline support for Democrats in Iowa has dropped dramatically starting with about the 2010 cycle. So he wins with 62, 65 percent instead of with 71 percent, but that's still a win.
1: And just for perspective, Chuck Grassley was first elected to the Senate in 1981. I was born in 1980, and I'll be 42 in May. So he'd been there a little bit.
0: Yeah, he is uh, older. He's been in the Senate since before his main opponent, Abby Finkenauer, was born. So,
1: Let's talk about her. Uh, Abby Finkenauer is uh, presumably the Democratic nominee. She's still got to go through the process, but they had the embarrassing... Uh, situation of Cross not being able to rustle up a few thousand signatures, which is amazing. She's kind of running pretty low key campaigns. She made a little noise about term limits. What's your read on her? We don't think she'll win, but is she going to be doing anything to elevate herself or the party here?
0: I think the party activists are fairly solid behind, uh, behind Thinking Hour, though uh, Admiral Michael Franken is also a pretty strong candidate. And there's some party activists who believe he would be a better match in the general election against, against Grassley. There's a third candidate, Dr. Glenn Hurst who's kind of from the Sanders wing of the party, he may draw 10 or 15% in the primary, so he's not much of a factor. Uh, I would say the smart betting money would be thinking hour, but the race isn't really over yet.
1: What do you think the issues will be? Because, again, when you have a race that's probably not in a whole lot of doubt unless something screwy happens, it becomes a messaging sort of thing. What do you see the messaging in Iowa to be from somebody like Chuck Grassley, who can pretty much do anything he wants electorally, but you kind of pay attention to what message they push when all the pressure's off, because they tend to go to what they really want to talk about. What do you see from the Republican side and the Democratic side messaging wise coming out of this race?
0: I see probably a lot of party boilerplate. The state has polarized a lot in the last decade, and so it becomes a matter, especially in a midterm, of getting your base out. So there's going to be a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of Pelosi uh comparisons there's going to be a lot of trump comparisons things like that the only real vulnerability that chuck grassley has is his age the problem is iowa is an old state it's considered really bad manners uh to say somebody is too old to serve so thinking hour is trying to go at it sideways by talking about term limits which puts her in the odd position of self-term limiting herself were she to win in her mid 40s and that's the other problem is the term limits aren't particularly popular among democrats and you know when you're the party that believes in government it's harder to argue for term limits than when you're the party that doesn't believe in government there's also kind of a near consensus that republicans don't try to deny very hard that grassley's not looking at serving out the full term he's looking at a resignation at some point and then the two leading candidates to replace him by appointment would be either Pat Grassley, his grandson, who's currently Speaker of the Iowa House, or Governor Kim Reynolds.
1: Is that how you read it? Because a lot of people, when he kind of changed course on that, was like, ah, oh, he. this is a succession plan more than an actual plan to serve out the term. Is that how it feels to you?
0: That's kind of how it feels to me. There was a register poll several months ago that had a large percentage of people wanting someone new, but when they're faced with the choice of, okay, that someone new would be a Democrat, then they're likely just to go back to the Republicans. Now, Grassley does have a primary challenge from uh, State Senator Jim Carlin, who's a little bit more Trumpy than Grassley is, but that's not really a very serious challenge.
1: John Dees out in Iowa. All right, let me ask you this. You're a local level uh, party official. Uh, let's project ahead of time to when we will be talking about Iowa a lot. 2024, I know we got to get through the midterms first, but the way Iowa was, as soon as these midterms are, are over, you're going to start getting people start showing up at events and schools and barbecues and all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, what's your read on 2024? Is I know people want to talk about Joe Biden isn't going to run again, but I think if there's breath in the man's body, he's going to run again. And I also, quite frankly, think, and I'm not a Democrat, you are, you tell me, I think he's the only one that can get a coalition together that they're going to need to win in 2024. Do you see it differently? Do you think Biden's the guy or do you see some other option here?
0: Looking back at 2020, I was a Warren guy uh, and I was very enthusiastic for Senator Warren, but I think in retrospect, Joe Biden was probably the only person who could have won because he was the only person who could attract what I would call the normie moderates who were sick of Trump, but were just not comfortable with somebody like a a Warren or a Sanders. So I think most of the Democratic activists are working under the assumption that the president is going to run for another term. So the action is going to be on the Republican side. And of course, there's an 800 pound gorilla on the Republican side right now. Will Trump run? or won't he run. I think in the end, he probably won't end up running. Either he'll be under some kind of indictment or he'll be in some kind of voluntary exile. My bet has always been the United Arab Emirates because they don't have an extradition treaty with us and he owns property over there. Uh, But obviously, even if he's not a candidate, his stamp of approval is going to be the key issue in the Republican caucus next cycle. Uh, you're going to be looking at people like DeSantis or Haley or Christy Noem from the next state over in uh, South Dakota. Uh, people like that coming in and trying to be the Trumpiest candidate that's possible. Never count Ted Cruz out. He actually won the Iowa caucuses in 2020 over Trump. And so there was a little bit of... Uh, Iowa hate from Trump uh, for a few weeks until the Iowa Republican Party leadership got on board with him. And then that all of a sudden vanished.
1: Yeah, I think you're being a little wishful about your uh, exile with Donald Trump, but I'll give you that one. But and to be fair, that was before Trump ripped uh, Ted Cruz's electoral soul out and wore it as a hat and made him compliment it over and over again. So that was Mm -hmm. a different Ted Cruz than the one we're getting now. Let's just point that out. Uh, okay, let's go there. Uh, which it, I know it's way too early, but I, I'll just ask you directly let's assume that the Republicans have a great midterm cycle, which historically and cyclically they should have a good cycle. Uh, if, uh yeah, if the, if the Democrat, I think it actually, I, I've been telling folks and they kind of give me a little I was like, remember, the Biden of 2024 is not the Biden of 2022 before the midterms happened because he's going to have what he doesn't have now. He'll have a Republican Congress to run against and never give the GOP you know, a chance to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. But uh, does that feel like, you know, I don't think he's in too bad a shape. I know his approvals are in the 40s, but that's not out of the norm for a midterm cycle. If he gets a Republican Congress to run against, you're at that local level. Is that enough excitement of a Republican-controlled Congress to kind of get the vote out? And I don't know if he'll see those record levels again that he got under vote, but you're at that local level. You tell me, Republican Congress, either both houses or at least the House of Representatives, is that enough to drive the vote in 2024 to Biden at your level?
0: I think so. Of course, I'm not from the best perspective in Iowa. I'm in the bluest county in the state, but I can already see the lines long blocks of cars waiting to vote that we had in 2020. People won't people can't wait to get out and vote. Uh, we saw it in, uh, 2018 midterms. We saw it in the 2020 presidential, uh, when the other thing that's going on is people react negatively to vote suppression. When you try to stop somebody from voting, there becomes this attitude of, well, to heck with you, I'm going to make sure I get out and vote. So there'll be, I think, a redoubling of efforts on the democratic side. One of the things that hurt Democrats in Iowa in 2020 was the decision not to do door-to-door campaigning, which is sort of a requirement in Iowa. Uh, And I understand that decision. I think from a point of view of rhetoric, that was the right decision because we wanted to sell the idea that COVID was serious. We also didn't want our field organizers to be risking their lives in the period before we had vaccines. But now there's been an almost universal consensus that we have to get back on the doors and we have to be talking to voters face-to-face in Iowa. And I uh, I think Iowa Democrats... Uh, will probably see friendlier faces than they expect. The question is whether it's going to be enough because that western end of the state is just so red.
1: Yeah, John Deeth, outstanding insight into Iowa. It is an election year, so we'll be checking back in with you later on, I'm sure. Let folks know where they can follow you. You actually wrote a five-piece thing on your own blog, uh, at blogspot.com. Make sure you go read that. Excellent background material, a lot more in-depth Let people know where they can follow you on social media and what you got going on, sir.
0: Yeah, my Twitter handle is just my name, John Deeth, and the blog is a little bit dormant right now, but it's still out there. I did a lot of writing from about 2002 through about uh, 16 or 18. I still keep it up in case I get some thoughts that need more than 280 characters, but uh, you can also get there from JohnDeeth.com.
1: Fantastic stuff. Appreciate you breaking down the Iowa for us. Uh, You represent your state well, sir, and we appreciate your time.